broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Welcome, guys, to the studio. Good morning, morning. all. Good morning. Good morning. Now, a couple of things that have happened um, in the last week. Uh, Super Bowl. Now, I heard you guys had a bit of a planning session, but um, there may have been also some <laughs> watching of the Super Bowl. If I'm Very right. educational. <laughs> yes. There Great. may have been a lunchtime break yes. during been? our planning session. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me, was there any strategy that you learned in this, uh, in this forum? Well, winning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There is a formula for success, yeah, and uh, you've got to take your hats off to Bill Belichick and Tom Brady of the New England Patriots. Now, I know that not everyone here who's going to be listening is is an NFL fan, but uh, there's some strong correlations with other successful teams and how they can continue to repeat that success and always be up around challenging for that next championship. and. It, and it's probably one of the, the best records in terms of longevity and success Absolutely. of a sporting team anywhere on, on the globe. Yeah, yeah. M- most definitely. And, you know, I mean, Tom Brady, he's phenomenal. He's, what, 42 yeah. now? I think 42. And he's winning Super Bowls. He was MVP last yeah. year. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the, that whole idea behind uh, success, um, it doesn't just happen, uh, you know, and being as successful and consistently competing for championships and, and you know, beating the competition, um, you know, that sustained level of success it really comes down to a formula. And if you have a look at mm. some of the great teams that, you know, we're all familiar with, like Hawthorne and Alistair Clarkson, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, if you have a look at, um, you know, uh, Melbourne Storm, Melbourne Storm um, who are always up there, no matter, you know, how good the players are that they've got on their roster mm-hmm. and uh, the Patriots, uh, they've got a formula that they, they trust their game plan. They a- and the discipline to implement. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and they know that even if they start the season, you know, two and two or, or they go down one and three and they've had a dodgy start to the season, they have mm-hmm. so much confidence that their game plan has worked and it's got resilience that, you know, given the execution of that and continual execution, that they'll turn things around and, and, and continue to compete later in the in the season. Sounds a bit like some of the things Louis talks about with money. Well, isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, you absolutely hear it in the language, certainly in the recent years from the AFL coaches, about coaching to a system. Um, it's, it's less and less about the people. Uh, it is, of course, about identifying the skills and the talents of the individual player, uh, but it's about adapting that to the system that they have in mind. Correct. And then if one player goes down with injury, they've got another player to replace that mm. position. That's right. Uh, so th- this idea of coaching to a system is, is critically important uh, and very much applies to what we do with personal finances, uh, both in terms of um, the structures that we set up and the ideas we have for getting to success, but also the mindset of a person coming in. Uh, certain... Um, common values around money and attitudes towards money uh, do result in common systems that we create for people of a certain personality type. 
uh, and a certain relationship with money so that they can be successful. It's all very interesting. Yeah. The other thing I well, sorry, sorry, the other thing I took away, the Super Bowl game on Monday was pretty boring actually as a spectacle. Mm. But obviously for the Patriots perspective, I don't care they got the win. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time managing your money can be a, a mundane type of process. Oh god, it's boring. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But if you want to be successful at it, you just endure the boring because it gets yeah. results. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my advice last week was, uh, was around uh, how to review your cash flow over the last calendar year. Um, I told people to log on to their internet banking and get mm-hmm. their first of the month balances for 12 months uh, of last year and write them down. Oh, that's a boring job. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. <laughs> sorry to give you something really boring to do, <laughs> but... It's so critical that you do it. Yeah. Uh, that information is so valuable to actually setting you up for success. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the most successful investors in the world, whether or not they're property developers, they're, you know, buy and hold real estate investors or they're stock investors, mm-hmm. you know, those successful uh, investors that have consistently generated above average returns through, you know, many, many years have a formula that they yep. follow and they know that, you and know, they stick to it and they stick to it and they know that in good times and in bad times, you know, s- there's going to be good times and bad times, but they know that if they've got an edge and they continue to repeat that process and that system that on average through the cycle, they're going to deliver above average results, even though there will be periods of underperformance. So mm. true. Best book I've read <coughs> on that is a book that I know some of us have read by Ray Dalio ah, is Principles. Principles. Yeah, very it's good book. him putting down in writing what his systems are. Mm. Uh, and by having them down in writing, he can be 100% consistent in his decision-making mm. and he can work to a system instead of uh, working with misinformation or um, uh, incomplete yep. information. Yep, and just you know, just like the Patriots, they didn't win every year, but they've won more than any other team. There's 34, 36 teams in the NFL yeah. and they've won six championships out of the last... 18. Nine that they've been in, and yeah. out in of the last eighteen and years, yeah, and in the last yeah. eighteen years, they've been in one in every two, and yeah, played. come runner up a couple of times in yeah. there as well. Well, yeah. talking about not winning, great run um, all the time. Let's just move on to the topic uh, uh-huh. that's been quite contentious <laughs> this week, and that is the royal commission. Great segue. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about, now we're talking about losing. <laughs> we sure are. <laughs> Nab. <coughs> <laughs> they did get nabbed, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> nabbed. Did. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Haven't they got themselves into a? Uh, into a real spin. Ugh. So they were really singled out by the Royal Commission report. Uh, all the other banks, of course, copped a, a fair beating during the course of the Royal Commission. Mm. Uh, but the Commissioner Hayne uh, didn't think that NAB had been bashed enough. So he uh, really gave it to him on Monday. I think uh, what led to a lot of uh, Hayne's uh, wrath was uh, really come, you know, come, coming down to the fact that NAB challenged Hayne in the Royal Commission. Yeah, and the way they were on the stand. Yeah, and, a little yeah. bit cocky, a little bit mm. confrontational, a little bit like, you know, above it all. Yeah. And uh, Well, it, it did give the impression they weren't taking it serious. Yeah. Like they weren't willing to listen that there's an issue. Yep, mm. yep. Mm. And, and sure enough, uh, the <laughs> it's cost them both Ooh. their jobs. Yeah. There you go. There you yeah. go. They were also late from memory in providing a lot of their documents yes. for the Royal Commission. And they were misleading with some of the information that they handed over as well. Mm. Deliberately misleading, which y- they admitted yeah. to. Yes. Yeah. So, well, it's cost, cost them both their jobs and probably their reputations. I mean, you're, just have a think about this for the moment. You know, the chair of NAB was Ken Henry. Now, he was the former secretary of the Treasury for the Australian government. Yep. 
under the Rudd government, and um, and he's now gone. And he's now gone, and he was the one who was responsible for handing out you know the thousand dollar bonus just before Christmas time when the GFC was was uh, getting at its peak. So you know he played a critical role and is was a highly respected economist and mm. uh, you know obviously chairman. But um, yeah, yep. uh, unfortunately his life's worth worth of work has now been, been brought tarnished. Yeah, tarnished a little bit. Yep. Yep. yep, and uh, and they've lost their CEO as well. Yeah, that's mm. right. Now, just a couple of other things to come out of the Royal Commission. So we should really just update the listeners in some of the key recommendations from uh, Mr. Hayne or the Honourable Hayne. Did I read right? 76 recommendations he's made in his that's report? Correct. 76 yep. recommendations. Lots of them are sort of behind-the-scenes things which, uh, which most consumers would never see. Uh, things like um, superannuation trustees having additional requirements, a lot of things directed at the regulators, the uh, ASIC, ASIC and APRA, APRA um, and the uh, the complaints tribunal and the setup of those things, um, but a lot of other things that will impact consumers. Yeah, it, lo- mm. it looks as though uh, he is wanting to implement a regulator of the regulators almost. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a new oversight body at least, um, you know, consisting of three persons to oversee what APRA and ASIC are, are doing uh, and, um, and regular reviews of the regulators every four years of the capabilities of those regulators. So it's probably not so much a regulator of the regulators, but just making sure that those regulators are being resourced, uh, have got appropriate, are, are adapting to the evolving you know, mm. uh, technology and challenges and environment and the economy that uh, is prevailing at that time. Which that is, all sounds reasonable. Yeah. Yep, it does. Um, we've also seen that uh, there were more than 20 referrals of major financial institutions that have been made to the Commissioner to, uh, for ASIC and APRA to investigate for further breaches of the financial services laws and regulations. So there's still more bad news for some actors to come. Um, mm-hmm. We've also seen that uh, mortgage brokers are, are under the spotlight yep. uh, and the way that they are remunerated. There's a big push coming out of the Royal Commission for mortgage brokers to move to a fee-for-service model and the banning of commissions and particularly trail commissions, um, which will be interesting to see how that actually works because I'm not so sure people will pay I, I don't know. For fee-for-service for a mortgage I'm advice. Yeah, I they? don't know that they would and I'm not sure they should. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a very valid argument is that mortgage brokers promote competition uh, between the, the big banks yeah. and also Which I believe even, they do. even the playing fields with the smaller banks and non-bank lenders. Mm. Uh, that's what I would argue for. I think I think uh, mortgage brokers in the current form really do play a, a vital role right. in in being you know uh, in, in getting making, the best deal absolutely and making and the banks keeping it competitive exactly yeah. you know if a bank knows that uh, that a client is unlikely to move because there's you know no impetus for them to be able you know like mortgage brokers help facilitate and encourage clients to actively review their loans yep. which means that banks have to continually be thinking about what mm. the competition is doing to remain competitive. Yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of what was suggested with regards to mortgage brokers could probably be dealt with much better if they followed maybe the insurance broking path where they've level commissions across all insurers. That's right. 
level trails across all insurers and so there's no conflicts of interest to recommend one particular product over another that's the real yeah. issue isn't it yeah. it's, it's not yeah. that they're, they're not delivering good service or value it's that it's a conflicted remuneration that may lack a bit of fiduciary duty yeah that's yeah. right you know westpac will pay a 0.65 percent upfront mm. commission whereas commonwealth bank will pay 0.8 percent yeah upfront commission so who's, so who's the mortgage broker going to choose mm. yeah that's right, yeah. So, Brett, I was going to ask you, what impact do you really think that the Royal Commission is going to have on the property market? I mean, what's your take? Yeah, look, overall, I think it's not going to have a massive impact in terms of the market, in terms of pricing and housing values. It's going to obviously have influences overall in terms of how people transact, obtain mortgages. That's going to happen. As we just spoke about with the broker's scenario, that's yet to play out exactly where it lands. Obviously, we've got opinions here, but you know we're not going to make those decisions. Uh, so that'll that'll be an interesting thing to see how that mortgage broker space plays out and whether you know they do ban the commissions. What does that mean for the consumers when they do go for debt? Do they just go straight to banks only? Hard to, hard to say. But even that scenario, they'll still go and get debt somewhere and they'll still buy. I think the other part of it that, um, that is more interesting in terms of how the Royal Commission is likely to impact uh, the housing market in particular is some of the commentary that's come about uh, in the wake of, the, 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 of Kenneth Haynes' report. Uh, one of the, the reports I read is from Westpac boss Brian Hartzer. So obviously we know the NAB have been hit hard. Westpac were hit hard earlier. Uh, but he's said that he thinks it's time everyone takes a deep breath and looks at the facts. Yeah. Pretty sound logic, okay? There's a lot of hype, there's a lot of uncertainty, but it's like, let's just take a step back. Obviously, we know all this is coming. Let's just have a look at the facts and, and, and be reasonable about it. Uh, and he highlighted a few things. He said that the Sydney and Melbourne property market skyrocketed between 2011 and 2017. Uh, and in total, they surged 75% in Sydney and 55% in Melbourne over that time. Now, unsustainable levels. You couldn't continue that amount of growth. Housing would just become unaffordable and there wouldn't be enough people that could afford to, to pay those prices. Yeah. Uh, and he said also in, in relation to that, that it's important to note it's normal and indeed healthy for the economy for the house price cycle to slow after the six strong years of growth. Mm. Okay, similar to what we've sort of been voicing yep. as well. Yep. Okay. He also went on to say, let's be clear here. We want to lend. The banks want to lend. Obviously, they, they know they need to adhere to the rules and they need to go about it appropriately, uh, but they want to lend. It's their business. They want to be out there. Uh, and he said, with interest rates historically low, it's in everyone's interest to make sure customers can afford loans if circumstances change. So the other thing that I thought was the biggest influence uh, that uh, is going to come out of this in terms of how the banks go about their loans is the reliance they had on servicing and, uh, and people's um, income and expenses. There was a certain process they were all using that seemed to cause a lot of issues and they're gonna look at changing it now. There's a terminology for it, H-E-M, I think it is. Uh, reliance on the H-E-M, which is under the Responsible Lending Provisions of the National Consumer Protection Act. I'm just trying to understand exactly what H-E-M stands for. Household Expenditure Measure, that's what it was. So. Uh, there was a reliance on this household expenditure measure that all the banks were using that just became a little bit too onerous and a little bit too difficult and a little bit out of sync with, with what's required for lending. So with changes to that, it should mean that uh, lending will continue on basically as it has been for the last year or two. You know, The regulations or the, the speed limits that were put in place by APRA 
have now been eased, but a lot of the flow-through effect and the systems, as we spoke about before, the system changes that all the banks have made are going to continue on after they've been implemented now. So a lot of what I'm reading and a lot of what I'm seeing in terms of what's going to happen based on this, I don't think is going to change a lot of how people are going to transact in property. So you don't yeah. think it's going to slow it down for people to actually get their hands on loans now that the Royal Commission has happened? You don't think they're going to be No, because them? I think all of the things that, that the Royal Commission is handing down have already been implemented right. when it comes to people getting home loans. Yeah. The banks the banks saw this coming, saw coming and they've already started taking action yeah. know, last year. Um, uh, so a lot of the policies of the banks have been updated. I, I think they're, they're already prepared. Th- yeah. yeah. And, I, and for a lot of people, getting the loan is secondary. What they really decide they want is the property. Yeah. So they decide on a property they want, and then they find the mortgage that they can get for the property. Or they decide they want to buy a home, mm. and then like, okay, well, I guess I need a mortgage, so how do I get a mortgage? What about the levels of debt that people can get their hands on? Do you think that's going to be scrutinised? Do you think that will remain the same? What do you think? Because, I mean, we did pull back with the lending. What will happen? Well, um, well, one of the other concerns that was coming out of the Royal Commission was the, and this is in relation to mortgage brokers, was that mortgage brokers were enticed to try and get get borrowers to borrow as much as they could yep. uh, because obviously they get remunerated on the percentage mm. based on the commission. Now, I think that there's a simple way to sort of overcome that. Just keep the banks lending responsibly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, okay, sure. And then also what you could also do, and I don't know if this is actually the case for mortgage brokers, but you implement, like financial advisors had five years ago with the FOFA reforms, a fiduciary duty where the, advise, where the mortgage broker has to put the interests of the client ahead of their own interests and there must be a you know burden of proof um, that shows that you have followed a process to demonstrate that you have actually done that like you know you've done a, a there's a calculator or a formula you've got supporting evidence that the client can afford this and it's safe and reasonable for that client to go out and take that amount of debt mm-hmm. so you know i don't think that all of these concerns that were sort of being hyped in the middle of last year are, are really insurmountable. It just needs some common sense policy. Yeah. There's definitely some push from the Commissioner's recommendations for mortgage brokers to be overseen in the same way as financial advisors. Which is only fair. Yeah. Which, which is fair and, and I guess is a bit of a continuation of what's been developing over the last probably 30 years between uh, financial advisors giving strategic advice, financial advisors giving insurance advice mm. and mortgage brokers all sort of being pushed together towards a common standard and a common expectation of their skills, capability, ethics, and those sorts of things. The one which I find interesting that is not in that basket yet is real estate. Yeah, still is. There are still property spruikers who they need a real estate license, but the real estate license is not subject to any of the... Uh, financial advice. Yeah, um, not regulated to any of the same degree. It's fascinating, really, because it's such a large purchase for somebody. It is. Biggest dollar transaction people make. That's right. And they're they're trusting the guidance of people that aren't regulated. Yeah. Mm. Most Mm. people will own more in property than what they will own in super. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yet it's not regulated uh, in the same way. Uh, You can make promises about financial returns as a real estate agent, um, you can back it up with uh, with a report prepared by your own agency mm-hmm. saying it will rent out for this much. This is our uh, rental appraisal. Uh, and whether it's true or not, 
Well, there's a definite yeah. conflict there. That conflict doesn't have to be disclosed. It's fairly obvious, but as a financial advisor, you have to put everything down in writing, all yeah. in disclosures. Yeah. Mm. Do you think that that will change? Do you think that's going to tighten up that industry pretty soon, or you know? What do you oh, think? give it another ten years and another royal commission, <laughs> and, and yeah. maybe a property crash. <laughs> well, maybe, I, yeah, you know, Gosh, I mean, doom and gloom over there. No, no, but what I'm sort of saying is that a lot of these issues don't get, yeah. you know. Uh, yeah, p- people don't pay attention to these issues unless people lose issue. money. And yeah. at the mm. moment, we haven't had a property crash in Australia for God knows how long. It's been decades mm. and, you know, not enough people have lost a significant amount of money. Most of the reforms that came out in the financial services industry were as a result of the, of the global financial crisis. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I think that, you know, if we do get a property crash... Uh, that will probably lead to a whole range of you know regulatory reforms, but until that happens, there's not a lot of political will to change the status quo because there's a lot yeah. of vested interests. Mm. That's yeah. right. Probably the only thing that I would say any of our listeners can do, which I believe is, it's it's almost like consumer regulation of real estate agents, is the portals like realestate.com and Domain now have so much data that you don't have to rely purely on what an agent says. You can go and do your own desktop research relatively easily. House prices? In pricing and and expectations, clearance rates, all this sort of stuff. So if, if, because obviously an agent's a salesman, Mm. first and foremost, they're selling to the listing property owner to try and win the business, then they're selling it to the market. So of course their motivation is to sell and and they're gonna use whatever stories and tactics they can to get Mm. that result. If you're doubting any of the information they're giving, the facts or the figures, there is, it's not always 100% accurate, but it's pretty good with the volume of data that you can easily access online for nothing. Mm. Which is why I think a defined property investment advisor is something that should exist in the regulations. Mm. I yeah. mean, it already exists, and Brett, yeah. that's really what you do as a buyer's advocate. Yep. And You're there are bodies, there are associations for that, but they're not regulated again. That's right. It, it's not regulated. Mm. It's, um, it's not clear that a real estate agent who is selling a property... Uh, is trying to do exactly that, represent the seller's interest, not the buyer's interest. And, and a property investment advisor or, or advocate is typically different to a traditional real estate agent because they're looking at it with a whole different perspective. Correct. Mm. Yeah. So you can do it yourself. Yes, you can get all that information yeah. online. A lot of it is freely available. Yeah. Uh, even more information is better through paid subscriptions, Yes. Uh, which you have access to. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just wish it was a... a, a a role that was defined in regulation, mm. same as financial advisor or um, credit advisor, which mm. is what a mortgage broker is. Yeah. I can see a day where it will happen, and I just don't know when. Yeah. We're just going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, and Louis, now following on from last week's podcast, we're going to review step two, which is reviewing your debts. Absolutely. So last week I started a series of 
what to do now that the new year is upon us and if you promised to uh, have a New Year's resolution of getting your finances in order uh, by the time last week came about, you probably still haven't done it. <laughs> so I gave you step one last week, which was how to review your cash flow by going back to your uh, last year's worth of statements and getting yourself a snapshot of, the f uh, of your account balances at the first day of each month. And that gives you an idea of how your cash flow is evolving over time. It's not budgeting. I'm not looking at where you're spending your money. I just want to know whether you have more money at the end of the year than what you had at the start of the year. Mm. Good exercise to do. Yeah. <laughs> kind of scary. Sim yeah. Simple but effective. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so that will give you some really good information about your own cash flow position. Mm. Now I'm going to give you step two. Now that you know your cash flow position and whether it's been positive or negative over the last calendar year, now it's time to review your debt position. Now we're looking at what is your home loan interest rate. We're looking at any investment loans you've got. We're also looking at your credit cards, whether you are paying interest on your credit cards, whether you're actually uh, paying your card by the statement due date and avoiding overdue fees. We're also looking at whether you have any personal loans or car loans or anything like that. And a lot of the time, and I've been guilty of this myself, we think, well, it's what I've got right now and the true answer to resolving my debt position is just to pay down my debts. Yes, that is the true answer, but that can happen over time. What I want to look at immediately is, can you change your debt structures or review your loans to reduce your interest rates or your borrowing costs? Because that will have an immediate impact mm -hmm. on how quickly you can pay down your debts. So uh, again, I do believe in credit advisors, which is mortgage brokers. So I encourage everyone to have a review of their debts with a mortgage broker. Mm. If you don't have a home loan or investment loan, if you only have personal debts uh, or credit cards, uh, you can still get a review done. A mortgage broker isn't gonna look at it if it doesn't have home loans attached. Mm. Um, but you could, in this case, walk into your bank branch because they are there to help and the person at the front counter will genuinely try to help you. It's just that they only have access to their own bank's products. Mm. Okay. But if you go in there and say, look, I'm paying interest on these things, can I have a review to look at how I can minimise their costs? You will have trust some... them at the moment though, Louis? Oh, uh, look, <laughs> you will have some very friendly staff yeah. and some very competent staff yeah. and they might say things like, well, you're paying interest on a credit card at 18%, mm. uh, let's package it into a personal loan where mm. you're only paying 10% yeah. and it has principal and interest repayments over two years. Mm. So after two years of making those payments, the debt is fully paid off. Yeah. You can get some very good uh, suggestions. Um, so I'm going to make that people's step two, their next job, to review their debts and do it with an expert. A second set of eyes is critically important. Mm. I've, again, I've been in the situation myself where I've thought, well, hang on, no, I'm in this situation and it just is the way it is. But when you go to someone else, a fresh pair of eyes, firstly, makes a huge difference for what ideas can be around to restructure your debts. And secondly, if that second pair of eyes is an expert who knows what current interest rates should be and knows what 
structures are available that might not have been around mm. last year or the year before. I mean, a prime example is what a home loan interest rate should be. Any home loan that is 4% or more should be reviewed. Yep. No one should be paying interest on their home loan with the number four at the start. If it's above four, go see a mortgage broker, mm. go get it reviewed because yep. you're paying too much. So simple things like that is information that you wouldn't have by yourself. You need an expert to tell you that. Louis, I remember years ago, I'd, I went on a holiday and I got myself into some credit card debt. And one of the things I did, which was my only way at the time because I wasn't a, a big income earner, was to, uh, to actually roll it from the position it was into one of those interest-free period ones. Yep. And that just bought me time and reduced my interest rate to allow me to pay it down. So yep. it's maybe even looking at some of those options depending on circumstances. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can certainly look at those sorts of options. And again, when you walk into a bank branch, they will tell you about potential interest-free period offers that they can mm. offer. Mm. Um, it is potentially dangerous territory if you're increasing the amount of credit that's available to you yeah. because you don't want to go further into debt, Yeah. which is why step one is so important. Because if you've done step one and you know that your cash flow is in a positive position, well, then that's going to be okay. If you're minimizing your interest and you know that you are uh, going to pay down that debt, well, then that's okay. Mm. But if you take on additional debt and you haven't done step one and you're actually in a negative spending position, it's highly dangerous. Yeah. I think the other um, bit of advice that you know, I could probably give with my own personal circumstances, smaller cash outlay, but it's also things like your health insurance and having another look at that because if you let it roll on for years and you never actually look at it, same with your phone bill. I mean, I had a really bad contract in place that I didn't realise how much I was paying. And you sort of just continue paying electricity, and water. And loyalty these days doesn't seem to be rewarded yeah. as much by these, absolutely. these providers. Yeah, mm. you're, you're absolutely right, Steph. And you've actually uh, jumped the gun on one of my uh, future no. topics. No. <laughs> Sorry, Louis. Step no, three or four. Not at all. Yeah. I'm sure he's got way more information to <laughs> yeah. cover off in the next, next topic that you yeah. have. Yeah, no, it is really good thinking. Yeah. Absolutely something you should do. Mm. Um, just do a review of your debts first. Yeah because that's a relatively big job uh, when you engage an expert or if you do it yourself, mm. there's a fair bit to it. So I'm only gonna yep. give you that one job for the week. I'll mm. get to your health insurance and your other bills <laughs> so another listeners, time. Follow Louis' steps, don't jump ahead like me uh, and just make sure that you continue following his steps and doing your homework. It's all about the system and the process. System, <laughs> follow the system. I'm all coaching right. to the system here. <laughs> so true. Thanks right. Steph. Well, we're gonna take another short break and we'll be back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning, and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. 
welcome back to our listeners. We're going to throw over to Joel now, who's going to lead us home with his topic today, which is on how to take advantage of volatility in the stock market. So no doubt, thanks Steph, no doubt, uh, you know, we're all still uh, a little bit shell-shocked from what happened just before Christmas time, but uh, the recovery has been strong and uh, much of the losses, probably a good two-thirds of the losses that occurred over the past three months leading into Christmas, uh, have been recovered in the last six months. But I don't think we're out of the woods yet in regards to seeing further choppy market conditions. In fact, last night, um, well, in fact, yesterday, we, we sent out a recommendation to clients to to trim a few positions, take a few profits on uh, positions we opened up only three and a half weeks ago, uh, with an expectation that um, you know the stock market is, was probably due for a bit of a short-term pullback, as it's turned out. The NASDAQ and the S&P were down about one, one and a half percent as, uh, as we're talking uh, at the moment. Now, I don't expect that this will turn into something anywhere near what we saw before Christmas time. Just um, the volatility that happens. Exactly. But, you know, could we see a 3, 5, maybe 7% correction here before we, you know, start to see, you know, f- and, and could we see oscillations of 3, 5, 7% within a trading range for the next three to six months? Yeah, absolutely. That's probably the most likely outcome. So in a market that's going sideways, how can you still make money? Well, one of the ways that you could do it is potentially try and trade the ranges. So if you can isolate where a level of support and resistance is, and you can identify where some trading channels might be, where the stock market is likely to turn, um, then that could be a nice way to sort of do some short-term trading around your portfolio by buying at the support levels and selling at the resistance levels. I prefer, or you could you could maybe look at uh, rolling some money into dividend-paying shares um, in the short term, and then rotating back into some growth-paying shares uh, as we start to see evidence that the stock market is starting to gain some strength again, and uh, we're looking at more higher prices breaking out. What you'd ideally look for there is a break of resistance levels, so that's where the stock market has typically been returned away from and sold off. Now, if we get a break above those resistance levels where sellers tend to come in and sell the market down. Uh, That's often a sign that we're seeing higher highs and higher lows in prices and that might be a good time to then rotate out of dividend paying shares into more growth focused Mm. stocks. The other strategy that we've been using quite uh, quite actively in the portfolios for our clients is the use of uh, options contracts. Now options is a little bit of a more complicated, uh, more advanced strategy for it's investors. It's so exciting. Yeah. Oh. It's not the boring old stuff. No. Options. But yes. if, if, if used correctly and if used in a conservative way, could add significantly to your portfolio without having to actually sell anything that you have in your portfolio. So there are two forms of options contracts. Does anyone know really what an options contract is? Well, I do. Yes. And I've I have an understanding. <laughs> I haven't. Tell me. There okay. we go. Well, look, an options contract is no more complicated than an insurance contract. And, uh, and just like with a typical insurance contract, you pay a premium to the insurer. They give you coverage for a specified period of time. And if some adverse event takes place, they reinstate you back to your original position. Now, they get to keep that insurance premium regardless of whether or not they pay that insurance contract out to you or not. Now, we also know that the insurers are the ones that typically make money out of these insurance contracts. Over time, the the insurers will collect much more in premium than what they have to pay out in claims. And that's a highly profitable business Mm. over time. Well, in the stock market, if you become an insurer, that is, you sell insurance over positions that you might want to get into, 
then you can make a lot of money um, just by collecting the insurance premium. So let me give you an example of what we've done most recently. Uh, about three and a half weeks ago, we advised our clients that it was time to put some cash to work that had been raised over the past three months. Uh, but we were a little bit concerned of the volatility that was likely to still be in play. So what we did was instead of telling clients to go out there and buy an exchange-traded fund, what we said was, why don't you sell some insurance to somebody who already owns that exchange-traded fund who might also be concerned that the market might reverse and fall back down again? Now let's identify a level that we're happy to pay for that exchange-traded fund. So in this instance here, we were looking at the NASDAQ, um, uh, at the NASDAQ and the NASDAQ at the time was trading at around about, um, about 6,500. Uh, and we were happy to buy an exchange traded fund that would represent the price performance of the NASDAQ. Uh, and we're happy to pay 6,500. But we were also concerned that there might be a pullback below that. So what we instead did is we sold insurance at 6,500, which was a level that we were happy to buy the NASDAQ ETF at. That person who bought the insurance from us, who was concerned about the stock market falling below 6,500, paid us a premium of 8.38% for coverage of 102 days. Wow. So 102 days, 8.3%. 8 8.3%. So an annual return of around 25%. 30%, yeah, yeah. 30% annualized return just by collecting the insurance premium. Now so this, no risk to you really? Well, there's risk because yeah. if, this, if the NASDAQ falls below 8% or more below uh, right. 6,500, yeah. then you start to lose. You're but we're, yeah. but we've now lowered our entry price, given ourselves an 8% sort of uh, variance uh, to play with or uh, slack to play with before we start to lose money. Of something you were wanting to buy anyway. Of something you wanted to buy. Mm. And we were waiting for the stock market to come down to a price that we were happy to pay. And in the meantime, while our money's sitting in cash, we're still earning a very high rate of return on the option premium. So we're essentially, if you think about it like this, if you're in the property market and you're looking at a property that is valued at $500,000 and yet you only want to pay $400,000 to it, you're essentially saying to the vendor, I only want to offer you $400,000 and I want you to pay me until you change your mind to give me $400,000. I'll take a piece it's, of that action. It seems ridiculous, where, where, doesn't where it? Can but I get we that? can actually execute that transaction and on those terms in the stock market. So it's a really effective strategy for those people who have identified investment positions that they'd like to get into, but want to be conservative about the price that they pay for it, but also earn a good return on money that's sitting in the bank account while we're waiting for that stock market or that, that stock to come back to the price that we're happy to pay. Do you suggest um, this kind of method for, like how much of people's portfolio would you recommend putting into that? Well, we have a specific allocation within our portfolios that ranges anywhere between sort of 25 to 40% of our client portfolios at any one time we could execute these strategies over. doesn't mean that we always have the strategy executed at that level. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, you know, as wait and see and as the market unfolds, what's the right step to take. But it's certainly something for everyday investors who are looking for a better way to try and buy stocks that they have identified as being attractive stocks for them and earning a, a solid return while they wait for that price to come down to them rather than them having to trade, chase that price. So Joel, sometimes you've got none of the portfolio in options. Correct. And sometimes you'll go up to maybe 25%, maybe even 40%. Correct. But you've got a, a really strong set of indicators. 
to That's give right. you a strong feeling of where the market's going to go. So when the NASDAQ was at 6,500, mm-hmm. you had some strong indicators that the price was going to move up. Correct. And then you provide insurance protection to someone else who is worried that the market is going to go down. Correct. So if you are wrong, then you can be out of the money. Yes. But because the premium is 8%, you could be wrong and you could have the market go down by 8% before you've actually lost any money Correct. on your yes. investment. And it's a very powerful strategy to be using in very choppy market conditions where you're trying to etch out another 2 3 4% across your portfolio in a market that's chopping up and down and essentially going nowhere. But mm-hmm. it's not the type of strategy that we would typically use in a market that is trending upwards. We tend to want to get exposure to rising prices in that type of environment. And since then, since it was at 6,500, the NASDAQ has uh, gone up and touched on 7,000 points. Correct. Uh, so your indicators pull, were right. Pull back a little bit to uh, 6,800, 6,900, but it's still well above that 6,500 that you paid someone else to protect against. Exactly, now here's the kicker. When we have a market that rose as quickly as what it did over the last three and a half weeks, remember we gave this insurance for 102 days. We've actually now captured 65 to 75% of that return that was possible to us in just three and a half weeks. So what we've done is we've said, okay, well, yes, we said it could have taken us 102 days to collect all of that premium. In actual fact, we've collected 75% of it in just three and a half weeks. Now you do the compounding on that return, starts to get really really impressive yes, that increases the rate wow yeah so if it's something that that you guys uh, that the investors out there are, are interested in by all means we'd love to have a chat with you and show you how we actually uh, go about executing that yeah, great great thanks for that insight joel and we'll have to wrap it up there with our last segment for the day which is you can't be serious now, of course, Brett, you're going to leave. I'll us bring one to the table. Huh? Uh, well, this one, our, our friends across the ditch, you know, they they don't win a lot. They know that we beat them at. Uh, I'm talking about the New Zealanders now, the Kiwis. <laughs> so, th- and of course, this was on a, a New Zealand website. So they've identified that we beat them in a lot of things: cricket, football, league, maybe not the All Blacks in, in the Union, netball, weather, our amusement parks. <laughs> <laughs> These are all the things that they know we're better at. So they found a quite an obscure study that they were looking for something to hang their hat on, so right. to speak. Uh, so what they've found is that there was a study done uh, of the average penis size. Oh, here we go. So they've found that the average erect penis for New Zealanders, males, New Zealand males, of course it has to be males, is... Is 5.5 inches, whereas Australians is only 5.2. <laughs> Winning. Winning. Uh, there you go. Eh? There we go. Well, there and look, go. And Steph's booking her. Next <laughs> yeah, to New Zealand. Oh, well, geez. actually, Steph, if you are going to book a holiday and that's going to influence you, there is the same article has a chart of the world color coded <laughs> with with areas of high or, or big and small, if you like. To be perfectly honest, I think I'll stick with wine regions instead. Uh, but well, yeah. for anyone that is interested going to a high growth area (laughs) come on South America seems to have the highest average oh wow holy shit now Joel bring us home what's your one for today well uh, I want to talk about my favourite Trump I don't know if you've ever if you've heard of the person Josh Trump the young the young 11-year-old who uh, who was invited specifically by Melania Trump to come and listen to 
the Donald uh, give his State of the Union address. He was a child of no relation to no the relation Trump to the Trump Trump family at all. But he gained but he no, has that surname. He has that surname, and he he gained notoriety uh, late last year because he came out with uh, he he was you know publicly um, uh, came out with the fact that he was being teased about having Trump's last name. So anyway, he was very excited, came to the State of the Union address only to fall asleep pretty much all the way through it. <laughs> so, overexcited. Yeah, overexcited. So, look, you know, good on you, Josh. You're uh, there in full support of your cohorts. Well Gosh, done. All right, well, we'll have to wrap it up there today, but thanks again for all your insight, boys, today, and thanks again to our listeners for tuning in, and we'll speak to you for next week. Okay. Thanks, thanks Steph. Steph. You've been listening to this week's episode of The Investor Exchange. To access this episode's show notes, go to theinvestorexchange.com.au and follow us on Facebook at The Investor Exchange for updates on our latest episodes. This show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Before making any investment decision, contact United Global Capital by emailing ugc.net.au for a personalized, no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Or alternatively, email us at info at ugc.net.au.